This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Linda Haywood about her new book, Jinga of Angola, Africa's Warrior Queen. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Linda Haywood about her new book, Jinga of Angola, Africa's Warrior Queen. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I, um, I teach at Boston University. Uh, for, I've been teaching here from since 2003. Before that, I taught for 19 years at Howard University, and I got my PhD from Columbia University and my undergraduate degree from Boston University. And I'm a historian of Africa and Africans in the Americas. What led you to choose Jinga as a topic? Well, I had been teaching Central African history way back at Howard University, and uh, she was one of the individuals who I, the students were always fascinated when I um, brought her up that lecture. And um, then when I came to Boston University, I decided to do a course, a new course on women in Africa. And uh, that's how I decided that I was very interested in women per se. And then I had co-authored a book with John Thornton on Central Africans, uh, Atlantic Creoles, and the foundation of the Americas, uh, uh, looking at the first group of Africans coming to the English and Dutch-speaking Americas. And we had touched on Jenga in that book. And uh, since I had done a lot more research than I had done when I was teaching in the early years, I decided that she needs to have a book. So I then went ahead and, and did the research to write a biography. I have to say, given her prominence and given the amount of documentary material there is about her, it really is surprising that uh, yours is one of the first books about her because she has such a fascinating life and as uh, and there's a lot of good sources about it. Well, these sources are, you know, in 17th century, the two first biographies uh, that was on Jenga um, by um, Gaeta, the missionaries who uh, knew her and were in her court in the last phase of her life. But these were not translated into English. So that, um, and you did have elements of her life surfacing in a lot of different uh, ways, even in literature in the 80, late 18th and 19th century. But no one had done, uh, uh, and you did have some, uh, bi- some works on Jenga, not biographies per se, um, scholarly works uh, from, written in Portuguese, but really not a biography. And uh, my biography is the first really historical biography in English. Uh, and that's why I think it's very important. Uh, you've been referring to the Portuguese, and they play a very large uh, role in uh, Jinga's life. And I was wondering if you could uh, start us off by explaining a bit about 
their presence in West Central Africa, and also the political uh, environment in West Central Africa in the late 16th and early 17th centuries? Well, um, the Portuguese actually uh, first arrived in West, West Central Africa in the <clears throat> 1480s. Uh, they actually went to a northern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Congo. In 1491, the uh, king of that uh, state converted to Christianity and did a lot to sort of domesticate Catholicism, you know, in his kingdom. His son, Afonso, was very instrumental in, in fact, making sure that his nobles and all the population actually converted to Christianity. And they considered themselves a Christian kingdom, wanted to be identified in Europe as a Christian kingdom. And um, the, they then went to south of um, the Kingdom of Congo to another state, which was Ndongo. And the king of the rulers of Ndongo, they were called, the, they had a title called the Angolas, N-G-O-L-A-S. <clears throat> and they had been uh, persuaded because of the uh, success of the religious and political relations that the kings of Congo had with the Portuguese to, in fact, tried to get in direct touch with the Portuguese. So they had attempted this from 1518. The sixth day of first Portuguese delegation came. Uh, 1575, the Portuguese came back and really uh, decided to um, conquer that area and spread uh, Christianity as well as, uh, you know, uh, get a uh, uh, search for minerals. They would think that there were, was gold and other uh, treasures as they had as the Europeans had found at least the Spanish in the Americas uh, but the big thing came came out of the slave trade that the Portuguese uh, developed in the region and uh, that that led to uh, you know large millions of Africans from the 1500s to to 1860s being exported from that region not only to Portuguese area of Brazil, but also to the Spanish, as well as to the English and Dutch and French regions of the Americas. You describe the role that the slave trade plays in uh, not just the economy of the uh, time, but also the, uh, the, the politics and the uh, diplomacy. Uh, I was wondering, though, if you could take us back for a moment and, and, and address two things. First of all, why was converting to Christianity so important? And second, what benefits did uh, kings like those in the Congo have of establishing this contact with the Portuguese? Basically, why did these African rulers reach out to establish that contact, given that the Portuguese were you know, taking so many people out of the region? Well, first of all, we have to remember that the uh, domestic politics, regional politics, expansion of states played a crucial role in the calculation of these African rulers. That's the first thing. So uh, Portuguese uh, arriving in the Congo uh, River Basin, uh, you know, in the, 50, the um, 1480s was uh, something that brought another player into the picture. The Kingdom of Congo was expanding. So they didn't set out to just slave, sell slaves to the Portuguese. They set out to look for um, certainly cultural and diplomatic and other types of relations that would allow them to follow a domestic agenda. This was the same uh, reason why the kings or rulers of Ndongo uh, reached out to the Portuguese. So domestic politics important. One of the things uh, also that one should keep in mind was that Europeans, as they went into the Americas, they were developing colonies. So their calculation was uh, to make uh, those colonies, uh, you know, if they, the colonies did not have the type of ready, you know, um, minerals that could be extracted, and populations uh, that were not accustomed to really um, strenuous agricultural 
labor, uh, they, they found populations in, in Angola and Congo in Central Africa uh, that, that were, you know, developed, you know, populations with, you know, regional centers of production, uh, transport, uh, uh, goods being transported over long distances, wars leading to captives, uh, the, the societies that had were hierarchically, you know, organized with people who were rulers or in the elite, uh, people who were um, free peasants, people who had the status of serfs who were kept on the land but would not be removed from the land, and people who were captives and brought in to the society who were dispensable. And initially, these were the first people who were exchanged, let's say, uh, you know, for goods uh, and other products uh, for that the Portuguese brought in the case of the Kingdom of Congo, they would be exchanged for some of the religious items and, and missionaries they, they, for, you know, the, who came to that area. The, the, the people in those areas had ca uh, ways of calculating, you know, um, exchange. So the they Congo used Zimbu shells uh, the um, the Angolans uh, of Dango had units of exchange. You know, one uh, goat will be equivalent to um, some other object. They produce uh, they produce copper. So we know that these areas were had their own systems of calculation and the exchange of captives. These are people who were not part of your society who were brought in as captives. They had certain, uh, you know, status. They didn't have legal status within the community, and these people were expendable. Uh, in the case of the Portuguese and their dealings with Ndongo, their interest was capturing and the the parts of Ndongo and the hold of Ndongo. In fact, then because this was a calculation of the Iberian powers, Spain and Portugal, you know, to to bring Christianity to to you know, to organize society along the lines of a feudal and exploitative, uh, you know, state systems that existed in, in Europe. And um, they sometimes this involved exporting Portuguese um, citizens to these areas where you would have settlers and then making sure that the settlers had backup uh, to, to impose military an economic regime on the populations who were called the conquered populations. And in the case of Angola and Congo, uh, the Congo took the strategy of reaching out to the Portuguese and having alliances with the Portuguese. This did not guarantee the Congo security. And in fact, some Congo kings, ex you know, complained that, you know, you are now taking our people. We, we did not come into this relationship for this type of, you know, um, disruption of the way our system worked. In the case of the Ndongo Kingdom, uh, this was pure conquest and imposition of Portuguese rule, taking over of lands that, uh, of, you know, that remain, that were under the rule of the people of Ndongo, or of the rulers, the Angolas, and then exporting those people uh, as, as captives, as slaves uh, to Brazil and, and to, you know, Spanish America. Uh, they were also, those people were all, some of them were also kept on, plant, on plantations that the uh, religious orders like the Jesuit established at large, you know, donatarios. That's land that was given to these, uh, to some religious orders, including the Jesuit. And the Jesuits were, in fact, the military arm of conquest for the Portuguese in Angola. Uh, or the, the, um, the, the major captains who came out with a disposition from the king of Portugal to, in fact, conquer these lands and bring them into Christianity, uh, they set up their own plantations and, and uh, slave systems and exploitative systems were set up in Angola as well. I was wondering if you could describe just in a bit more detail uh, Nindongo as it was when Jingo was born in uh, 1583, and uh, 1582. Excuse me, 1582. And what uh, what her uh, early years were like uh, within the kingdom, and 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 what her 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 family was like. 
Well, from what we, um, from, from what Jenga and uh, um, other older um, people who lived in Hokkot uh, relate to the missionaries who came to her court in the 1850s, um, she was um, a very much a precocious uh, child, but the environment in which she was born was one where the wars again, you know, uh, that the Portuguese made against Ndongo had taken off after 1579, especially, and uh, they had to. There was a lot of um, uh, insecurity, and and uh, the you know the her father, grandfather, other relatives were fighting against the the Portuguese who were taking over larger areas of Ndongo, even the capital, they moved their, their, um, they set up forts, military forts. So that um, it was, uh, I, I believe that Jenga grew up in an environment where resistance to the Portuguese was very much uh, in the minds of her, the older relatives in her court, her father was fighting, her brother fought against the Portuguese. Um, she uh, claimed uh, that she was very much, um, you know, read as a, as a, in her father's image. She would be in courts with him when he was given dispensing judgment. She listened to all the traditions. She uh, was very much um, uh, trained as young young men were trained, uh, you know, as military for, for fighting. And she she swears that uh, she was also trained, and she would in these military arts. And uh, she would, uh, you know, beat her brother. She was very, there was a sort of, I guess, a competition between her and her brother. And um, uh, so she was a normal child, but a child who had a purpose. She, she, she really uh, modeled her life, in my view, on the life of her, of her father, who was fighting the Portuguese for his old reign. And it sounds as though she was being groomed maybe not necessarily to become queen, but definitely to be a uh, important figure uh, in the kingdom and a, and, and a uh, major political actor in her own right. Well, yes, because um, the, um, as a member of the, her father was the Angola, so she had a certain status. Her mother also came from a certain, not the same region, but uh, was very much uh, you know, important. She admired her mother's. Uh, uh, family and uh, there were the lineages were very strong. These lineages or families intermarried, and um, and she saw herself as carrying on a legacy. She was very much of a royalist in that sense. She knew that uh, in her, uh, you know, in her kingdom there were people who were privileged like herself, and there were others who were free. Uh, you know, on the land, who remained on the land, and there were others who were captives and, you know, who were slaves and could be disposed of. How does it that, how, when does she start getting involved in politics? What, what's her uh, first, uh, you know, time as a political actor in her own right? Well, the first time we see her, there's a reference to her, you know, sometime between uh, 1618 and 1622, we do see her, the um, reports about her meeting with the, um, with the Portuguese governor in 1622, when she is called by, apparently she was not at, living with, uh, in the court. She and her brother had some um, Estrangement, and she was away from the court, but she had her supporters from the court. And her brother called her and uh, back uh, to to go uh, as his representative to bargain or to on a diplomatic mission in Luanda because the the capital of Ndongo was not in what the capital of Angola is today, Luanda, but it was um, in the uh, uh, some distance into the uh, country of Angola, and which today is Angola. So he called her back from wherever she was. We do not know how far away she was, but maybe not too far uh, in another region of Ndongo, and uh, asked her to head this diplomatic mission. She 
took this opportunity to really uh, place herself at the center of Ndongo politics. She was going to, you know, present the case of her brother uh, to the Portuguese governor so that they would uh, remove a certain fort that they had built, uh, you know, in her in the middle in the capital. And um, she was successful in 1622. And what the evidence that we have, the details that were given, uh, you know, collected after this event by the missionaries was that, in fact, Jenga was successful, but not only because her, of her, the way she carried herself, the way she uh, bargained and argued her, uh, with the Portuguese, and not only the missionaries, but the Portuguese um, uh, chronicler, Cardenegal, also mentioned uh, Jenga as being very intelligent, very uh, astute in, her, in the way she present, presented her case, and she was able to win over the governor and uh, they get an agreement, even though this agreement was not, you know, followed by the Portuguese, but she did, she was successful. Uh, the Portuguese saw in her, in 1622, uh, a way of expanding Christianity in, among the Ndongos, and therefore they actually asked her, uh, persuaded her, uh, to to be baptized, and she remained in Luanda sometime after the political uh, diplomatic uh, encounter she had with the Portuguese government. She remained in Luanda and actually went through the, the whole process of um, converting to Christianity. She, um, you know, at the end, she actually was baptized, and we have pictures uh, the, of the book, uh, in the book of her baptism, uh, one of the uh, sort of iconic images of Jinga is the one that uh, uh, that was made of her uh, sitting on the back of a servant slash slave uh, during the negotiations and using the back of the servant as a chair. That religious dimension is uh, a theme throughout your book, and you explain how important it is, not just uh, the importance of Christianity to the Portuguese and the efforts of the missionaries to convert uh, the population of the region to Christianity, but also the, uh, you know, the, the, the indigenous religion that existed prior to Christianity and how that was very much intertwined with the status of the kings of Ndongo and, 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 and the other re, uh, kingdoms of the region. And, and how you, you describe what really is a, a very interesting balancing act that Jinga really conducts throughout much of her life in terms of Christianity on the one hand and then uh, her own people's uh, indigenous beliefs on the other. Yes, and that's what intrigued me, uh, Jinga's spirituality, because she uh, she seemed to be at peace with some of the religious dimensions. Uh, for instance, the Angola was supposed to be able to make it rain and had certain spiritual dimension. He was, um, he had a lot, his priests were able, whenever they went out to battle, he would consult his priests. So they were, the, so, by the way, the Portuguese were doing the same thing. They were consulting the Jesuits. Portuguese soldiers didn't go out until they were blessed by the Jesuits. So I see spirituality in this world. And we, we are not thinking about the modern world. We are thinking about the pre-modern, you know, 17th century world. People were still very much into religion. And for Jenga, it was both her religious beliefs as well as the um, Catholic religion uh, that, that sort of uh, allowed her to be a spiritual person, but also to use uh, what I call religion or spirituality in a calculating way. I am not saying that she was not a genuine convert to uh, Catholic to the Catholic faith, but she, for her, she had seen the Portuguese use religion as a way to undermine um, Ndongo authority. So she was always suspicious of Portuguese Paris priests and uh, at uh, you know and the Jesuits. So uh, she did not mind the Capuchins from Rome coming directly to when she settled back 
down and conquered the kingdom and went on, you know, built really a Christian, attempted to build a Christian community, reconverted to Catholicism. She did not, um, she did not mind Catholic priests coming, but they had to come from, um, from, from, from the Vatican, from Rome, not from Portugal or from Luanda. She suspected that the Portuguese priests were coming with certain political calculations. So Jenga, both Portuguese and Jenga were playing politics with religion, in my view. She really did have an understanding of a lot of the nuances that would, frankly, be uh, befitting a European ruler who had grown up in that context. Well, yes, and this, uh, this is uh, this. Uh, I credit this to Jenga's um, political kind of a, you know, uh, some inner sense she had of how politics worked, and obviously. You know, in the Ndongo Kingdom did not have the same type of organization or the same type, similar types of elite, uh, you know, stratification uh, as the as the as Europe. But they had their own stratification. They had their own politics, and she was able to play that politics very well. You know, when the Kingdom of Congo, uh, she calculated that it was good to to join with the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, and the Dutch who came in to try to take uh, to, and took over Luanda's from 1641 to 1648, Jinga reached out to the Congo, uh, to the Congo king, Garcia. She also reached out to the Dutch and had an alliance with the Congo and the Dutch to get the Portuguese out of Angola. And they nearly, they nearly succeeded. But uh, reinforcements from Brazil, you know, um, turned the tides towards the Portuguese again. But even after that, she did not really just turn over and say, okay, you will, you win. No, even to the end of her life, Jenga was very much thinking, how do I keep my kingdom independent of the Portuguese? I played with them and everybody, uh, you know, sort of whenever an uh, African ruler involves themselves in, in trading of, of human beings. I said, oh my gosh, how could she have done that? How could she, they have done this? Well, that was the only type of, you know, exchange system that the Portuguese and Europeans demanded of Africans. So in order for her to, to remain part of this Atlantic world that had been established, this relationship between Angola and Brazil, you know, was very much uh, calculated on, you know, Africans being transferred from Angola to build Brazil. And there's no reason why Jenga, and I knew that Jenga, my own thinking is that Jenga knew a lot of what was going on in Europe. She knew a lot of what was going on in Brazil. She knew a lot of what was going on in Angola, in the Portuguese um a colony of Angola that had been sliced off from Ndongo. So when she um, when she was trying to get an ambassador to go to Rome, her own ambassador, she spoke with the Catholic priests, the Capuchin priests who were in her court and said, look, I am going to send an ambassador, but I don't want anyone to know, I don't want any of the Portuguese residents in Luanda to know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to send him under your guidance, and we are going to say that he's going to give his condolences to the queen who the king had died in Portugal. And then once in Portugal, then the Capuchin will get him to Rome. But the Portuguese <laughs> are not, not, never allow them to do her to do that because they said there's a law that no African, you know, person could travel to Europe. So this this ambassador never went. She had, you know, given him all the things that he needed, the slaves to sell on the way, you know, the dress. He spoke a little, some Portuguese. She was going to have him trained in Luanda whilst he was waiting to get what we would call today the visa, you know, to, to the exit visa to leave. He never went. But in the end, she had, she said, if he cannot do it, guess what? I ask you to be my ambassador and go and kiss the feet of the, the Pope 
so that he would know that I have, I need these missionaries. I need people to make sure that my kingdom is independent and that and that it would be protected in a certain sense from Portuguese aggression because as a Christian kingdom, I could call right to the center. I could call to Rome, right? I wouldn't have to rely on the Portuguese. I was wondering if you could uh, take us back a bit and explain how it was that she came to the throne. And because you know, female rulers it, it were, were not commonplace in Africa, and you do describe that the, the circumstances that, that brought her to the throne were uh, not, you know, s- you know, usual circumstances. There was a lot of political flux taking place, and the Portuguese were intervening in order to try to obtain favored candidates that they could manipulate. Well, yes, the, uh, the Portuguese governor at the time was um, um, he was not Fernando Souza. He was, he had been a recent, he had arrived in 1623, I think, or the beginning of 24. And uh, he was very much uh, suspicious. Uh, he had come with European ideas about ruling uh, and, and uh, didn't, uh, you know, really know about the uh, ways in which women in the Central African region at least in, in the traditions of Jenga, there were women who had played uh, important roles in, in um, you know, making sure their son got into power or their relative, their male relative, or they themselves took over. Um, and uh, he stipulated that he did not see, of all the people that you can put in power, do not let this woman, Jenga, get power um, because she's a usurper, and he then states that, you know, um, women were not supposed to rule in Ndongo. He, doesn't, he didn't know the traditions of Ndongo. He was imposing his own ideas about what should happen in Ndongo. So that, uh, uh, you know, when Jenga became queen in 1624, she was accused of having, you know, poisoned her brother. Uh, there had been accusations around that uh, the brother had, in fact, uh, you know, um, she had killed her brother's nephew, who should have been the the um, the rightful heir. And when J- the another tradition was that when Jenga was uh, a young woman, because it's it, it, she only converted when she was forty, um, uh, when she was younger, uh, 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 you know, uh, her brother had uh, um, had made it possible for her to lose. Uh, uh, you know, a, a child, uh, you know, a, a, ba- a, a son she had, and had also um, made it possible that she would um, not have children. There are all ways in which this was described. This is described in my book. I wouldn't go into it. But there was, there was some, there was a tension between Jenga and her brother, and the Portuguese were able to exploit this. And the Portuguese then put in place. Um, uh, uh, another a, a, a male from another lineage who Jenga um, believed was from a non-ruling lineage. She considered him, uh, you know, the, the, from the lineage of slaves who should not rule in Ndongo. So she put herself in a position of, in fact, reclaiming what she believed was her rightful, you know, throne, the rightful leader of you know, Ndongo, ruler of Ndongo. So she was very much, um, had a personal, uh, you know, calculation to get back into ruling Ndongo uh, and to remove what she believed to be an illegitimate uh, uh, ruler that the Portuguese had imposed against the people's will. And that's why Jenga was able to mobilize a lot of the population. This struggle defines so much of her early reign. And it raised two questions for me as I was reading, which was the first one being, uh, why was it that she had so much difficulty for so long? And at the same time, why was it that she was able to persevere for so long? Because it's one of those situations where she has these, uh, on the one hand, these long odds, uh, and yet, at the same time, it, it, the her her ability to uh, continue 
with this struggle is, is really quite remarkable. Well, uh, one of the uh, one of the reasons is that first of all, Jenga had to she had a core uh, group of supporters, uh, you know, in Ndongo. But some of the major players in Ndongo had um, gone over to the Portuguese side. So because uh, these lineages are competing for power. So if the Portuguese, uh, you know, they saw the Portuguese as another way of, in fact, improving their particular status within the politics of Ndongo. So there are two things going on. There's uh, the Portuguese political climate and then the, the Ndongo political climate. And you see some of the some of the um, sobers and and local rulers sometimes were um, persuaded by the Portuguese that they would be better off with by alliance with the Portuguese. Others uh, were of the you know view that uh, Jenga was a legitimate ruler and they should follow traditions. So Jenga had actually when she was removed. Uh, from power in 1626, she actually had to mobilize a much larger group of people in an environment where you have a series of different conflicts and the Portuguese trying to maneuver and put in place, uh, you know, people who would be anti-Jenga. There had been some, um, the Portuguese also had conquered some of those lands and, and, and taken uh, under their control, lands and peoples who were considered, especially the people, they were considered the serfs. They should not be sold off or removed from royal lands. And that was one of the things that that they, that Jenga tried to do to get back these these um, you know these uh, communities uh, that uh, that she considers as part of the natural inheritance of the of her lineage. Uh, secondly. Those uh, uh, those people who the Portuguese had put on their own lands did not consider themselves part of the Portuguese world. So a lot of them were looking for ways to, in fact, get back to Ndongo, to the capital, to the traditions. And once Jenga began to mobilize and use the tradition as well as the um, her fighting instincts, her mobilizing instincts, there were a lot of the um the Ndongo population that had been under the Portuguese control, who then realigned themselves with with Jenga, so she was able to do that. Plus the fact she also had calculated that if the Portuguese could could use the Mbangala, who were a group of uh what we'll call them, they they are called cannibals, they're called destroyers of population, they're a group of bands of young men who went around really. Um, you know, disrupting societies, whether this was disruption by intimidating societies with acts of cannibalism. The Portuguese has a lot of, you know, um, description of all the cannibal ways and actions of these populations, yet the Portuguese use the Mbangalas. Jenga also used the Mbangalas. So when people accuse um, Jenga of being an Mbangala, Jenga calculated that Given the political conditions and the strategic, you know, ideas that she had, that she had to meet the Portuguese on their own terms. The Portuguese governor Vasconcelos in 16, uh, 18, 19, when he made wars against the Ndongo, he actually captured 50,000 Angolans. Guess what? Some of those Angolans, the 20 and odd Negas, who ended up in the first British colony in North America, you know, in Virginia, they were from Jenga's people. They were, they were because they came to, you know, Virginia because the Portuguese ships, the Spanish ships that were carrying these, these captives across the Atlantic were, um, were um, stopped by British pirates, even though they, are, uh, they were flying different flags, they were British pirates who took them, the treasurer and the white lion, took these Africans to what is today Virginia. They'll be celebrating in 1619 the 400th anniversary of the arrival of these Africans. They were Angola, they were people of Ndongo, okay? So uh, Jenga realized that 
as, a, as any military officer, it's on the field, and you have to know what the in, military environment, what, how, who had the power, who had the upper hand. So she became an Mbengala and, and carried out some of their rituals. She swore to missionaries that she never um, ate human flesh. This is her words. It's in the book. She also said, I have to do uh, things that will satisfy my soldiers. So things like not letting children grow up in the Quilombo, that is a maroon settlement, that were always on the move. You know, she was one who made women. She had her own, she led the army. She made her own personal warriors. You know, she trained her own personal warriors, both with in Mbengala traditions and in Kimbundu traditions. That battle axe that you see, that uh, one of the pictures I have, is Jenga with her battle axe. That battle axe was supposed to be a uh, uh, spiritual, you know, only the queen, only the king, the ruler, could in fact use this battle axe and, and give the blessing to the people. The, the touch of the king, of the ruler, of Jenga, was a special touch that gave you, empowered you. These are the spiritual elements that Jenga was able to uh, mobilize and to use strategically. But she could also use the military. She had them. She had people doing exercise. At one point, Jenga turned around and was make, doing a military dance in her 70s. Kavatsi said he, he was absolutely astounded that she said, oh, I could do much. I could have done much better when I was younger. Okay? That's <laughs> it. She was an extraordinary woman, extraordinary leader. You know, that is why the, the um, you know, the Kavazzi and the Portuguese, both the Portuguese military officers and uh, the, the spiritual, you know, um, um, missionaries who were in her court. But, you know, they, both, they knew her. She had been fighting since 1626 against the Portuguese. Some of them had arrived in like Cardenega. He had arrived as a young man. He remained as an old man. He knew Jenga. He said she's one of the most, you know, intelligent women, strategic military. He he just comp they compare that her with all of these famous women in the past. You know, in the Greek world, you know, no one could could equal Jenga. You know that that's the whole thing. She's not someone who is just an ordinary person. You know, how when, was when, it? How was it that she was able to? Uh, Survive. Basically, how did she come to terms with the Portuguese, and and how was she able to uh, you know, live out her days as queen without having to uh, you know without the Portuguese continually trying to destabilize her with military force? Well, you see, she was able to get population, the surrounding populations, to follow her. That's one. She conquered the neighboring kingdom of Matamba. She established. Uh, a strategy to she wanted to get her sister her sister uh, you know Barbara who a Christian named Barbara she was uh, you know baptized by the Portuguese after they had killed by the way her other sister who had been sending Jenga you know reports on all the Portuguese military strategies while she was fighting them in the 1640s um, so Jenga decided that she had to stop. She was getting old. Uh, she had to remain in one place. And she had conquered Matamba, but hadn't lived there permanently. She was always moving her camp. So she decided this was the time. So in the 1650s, she began to reach out to missionaries. She, she, she sent them letters in Luanda, and uh, they were reaching out to her, the Capuchin, not the Jesuits, the Capuchin. And they were reaching out to her. So in time, what she, what she did was, in fact, to ally herself with the Capuchins who were in Luanda, asked them to send messages, sent letters to them to say she wanted missionaries. And she was, in fact, uh, thinking of, you know, making peace with the Portuguese. And it was all staged. It was all Jenga knew that the Portuguese had the military edge not in the interior where she were, where she was, but that she, after she was getting old, after her death, that she was going to, she had to have some additional leverage, 
So having the missionary and, and religion, Catholic religion was one where she saw as having, you know, as allowing her to remain uh, in control of that territory, Matamba, she had captured. So what the, at the negotiations, Jingo was able to get an, an, the eastern part of Ndongo, so she still had piece of the Ndongo kingdom, that the whole of which she thought should have been hers, and the new kingdom. This was in a signed treaty that she made with the Portuguese, and she also included also included in that treaty the release of her sister, so her sister could join her in Matamba and would become the next ruler. She would return to Christianity, she would baptize, she would give up all her, you know, various you know, concubines and just marry one uh, man. And in fact, the man that she chose was a young man who I was thinking of Macron's wife, you know, being 64 years and he's 39. Jenga was one of those women who loved youth and she surrounded herself with young males and females. So in any case, she was able to do this because her major... Um, decision for doing this was to make sure that her kingdom of Ndongo Matambo remain independent and that she would pass it on to her sister. And she doesn't just uh, convert to uh, Christianity herself, uh, but she also, as you described, she uh, tries to make her entire kingdom uh, a Christian oh, yes. kingdom. Oh, yes. She strategically, because she realized that the Portuguese might think twice if they had a strong Christian kingdom to the east. And so, therefore, she made sure that all the women, women she declared, could now give birth in Matamba, in the city and in the country. No more, you know, not giving birth. No more just roaming around, and she had all speeches about about you know the change of life. You know she helped build the first church, permanent church. Uh, she invested so much money. She had several churches built. She sent out Kabatsi into the surrounding areas where some of her populations uh, who supported her and who were part of the kingdom were located, and had them have. Uh, she sent her translator you know, who was a Congolese, by the way, you know, who knew Portuguese and who knew Kikongo and who knew Kimbundu, the, the languages there, and uh, to, to speak to all, to call all the Sobas together to say that they had to, in fact, give up the traditions and, in fact, return or baptize, you know, have their children baptized. This was a bit of Jinga's kind of a spiritual, ex, you know, expansion of, of Catholicism in the area. She had a, she had an a fraternity, Nossa Senora de Rosario, which she started in Matamba. She had uh, women, she, she went to Vesper. She, she just, maybe because she was older, she realized the end was coming. She just seemed to have been transformed, even though I can tell you that Cavazzi, you know, believed that Jenga, in fact, stole from heaven's treasure. That's what he wrote in an unpublished poem, which I published in my book. That was she real? Had she really converted deep down? For Cavazzi, he was not too sure. He said, her body is locked up. Therefore, we can sing to a most cunning thief. A most cunning thief has stolen from the treasure of heaven. Jenga really maybe, you know, did not give all her soul to Christianity. It seems she really gave her soul to people and being queen, because that always I seemed think, to be that laser-like focus of hers. Yes, she gave her all for her people, uh, being their ruler, protecting them. Even though a stern ruler, she was no, you know, she, people, because she lived so long, her own people thought that she'll never die. In fact, when she passed and the news reached Luanda, now Luanda is very, is distant from, you know, hundreds of miles from Matambo, where she died. When the news reached Luanda, the African the, from Ndongo, all of them were from Ndongo, who are now living in Portuguese capital of you know, Luanda in 1663, right? They said that it was the missionaries who, by their own 
evil had actually killed their queen because Jenga was not supposed to die. We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us a bit about what you're working on now? Well, I am working on the second book on Jenga, which would deal with how Jenga is remembered. Because even during Jenga's life, there were all these stories about uh, Jenga appearing here, appearing there. When I went to Angola, uh, people carried me to one of the places that Jenga had fought and said, showed me a, a footstep in uh, on the rocks of Mpongo and Dongo. These are some massive rocks that uh, where Jenga did a lot of her fighting and escaping. And they said, here's Jenga's footstep. I, I interviewed several of the descendants of of uh, Jenga's followers and Jenga way into what is still the place where people believe Jenga was buried. Not only people, the missionary, um, uh, you know, in six in 1957, so who, a Capuchin went to that area and he said he believed that you know people, uh, the people he spoke with, you know, believed that Jenga's body is buried there. And when I went, it's the same, you know, picture I saw and the people told me some some um, capuchins were buried in one set of grave, but here is Jenga's grave and they honor Jenga. They swear that, you know, they are the descendants of Jenga, the followers who followed her and they put down all their roots along the route that Jenga took when she was escaping the Portuguese. So there was a lot of tradition. And I am collected, I've collected these traditions, but it isn't just a tradition. In the written accounts, the Portuguese has written, I have written about Jenga. Um, we have Hegel mentioning Jenga about this, this area that where there's a, a rule by a ferocious, you know, female ruler with her, with her furies. I, I would uh, speak to that. I also would speak to Jenga's, uh, you know, the memory of Jenga. Uh, among the contemporary Africans in Angola, where Jenga is, is considered a mother, the mother of the nation. Then I'll go to Brazil, where we have traditions about the queen, Jenga, being elected the king of Congo and Queen Jenga in the Congadas in Brazil. And I go to Cuba, where since 1975, Jenga has ended traditions of Palo Monte in Cuba. And guess what? In the last chapter of my book, this book on Jenga and memory, Jenga is here in North America in the 1840s. The abolitionists <laughs> began writing about this queen. So I have a lot to say about Jenga and her memory in the world. Sounds like a very interesting book. I'm excited to continue Jenga's story. Oh, well, Linda Haywood, I hope we can have you back to talk about that continuation when the book comes out. Uh, but until then, I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, thank you very much for letting me just talk about Jenga. It's all exciting. And it's, it's a story that is a world story. It's a global story. So thank you again for thinking of having me on. Oh, you're welcome.